Blog Talk Radio. following sermon is by John MacArthur, pastor, author, and Bible teacher with Grace to You. If you've never contacted Grace to You, we want to send you a free booklet by John called God's Sufficient Word. It will help you see that for every concern you have, every decision, every struggle, every sorrow you face, the Bible has the wisdom you need. Request your free booklet by writing to word at gty.org. That's word at gty.org. This offer is good in North America and Europe through December 2022. And now, unleashing God's truth one verse at a time, here's grace to you Bible teacher John MacArthur. I have been uh, 
navigating over the last couple of years the current uh, situation in our world and in our our country and trying to address issues that would be of help to you. And uh, there seems to be one uh, sort of dangling issue that I haven't gotten around to, and the Lord prompted my heart for that subject today. And you notice the title, The Believer's Highest Earthly Joy. This is a call for joy, and it is a reasonable call for joy. And it strikes me that this is an important thing to examine from the Word of God, because if ever there was a time that uh, your joy could fade, it would be this particular time in the history of our society especially for those who are older, who have seen the degradation and the corruption and the loss and the spiraling down and the darkening darkness uh, in ways that uh, really are very different from the past. And even for the younger generation who are basically hammered incessantly with the corruption of this culture, and wonder just exactly if there's going to be anything left of society in which we could find a measure of joy and a measure of satisfaction if things continue the way they are going. We have said numbers of times to you that we're basically living in Romans 1. We've had a sexual revolution followed by a homosexual revolution followed by a reprobate mind. It's an insane culture that doesn't know truth from lies and deception and the horrors of it continue to mount. And it begins to have an effect on us because we are so saturated with the ugliness of this culture through the media. And I, I want this morning to draw you away from that if I can, and I want to direct you toward the believer's highest earthly joy. And this is a joy that should overpower all that disappoints you and tends to make you sad. So open your Bible to 1 Peter. 1 Peter, that little epistle toward the end of the New Testament. And I want to read to you verses 3 through 9 and then talk about this subject of the believer's highest earthly joy. And some of you have perhaps been thinking about what that joy might be. You can maybe think of a number of of joys, but there is one that you will soon find out is the believer's highest earthly joy, and it has no equal. We'll get to that in a moment. But starting with 1 Peter 1.3, with that benediction, I want to read down through verse 9 as the setting for our message this morning. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice. Even though now for a little while, if necessary, 
you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen Him, you love Him, and though you do not see Him now, but believe in Him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Marvelous portion of Scripture. And I want to draw your attention to two statements. One of them appears in verse 6 at the beginning of the verse. In this you greatly rejoice. This is a statement of fact. This is a fact. In this you greatly rejoice. And then at the end of verse 8, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Peter is saying that is your experience as a believer. And he's writing to some people who are in very, very dire circumstances. They are suffering. If you go through this entire epistle, you will find references to the fact that they were being slandered. They were being falsely accused. They were being persecuted. They were being intimidated. They were basically being denounced at every point by a completely pagan culture. Life was hard. It was all-out hostile persecution. And in the face of that, as Peter writes to them, and all through this epistle, he acknowledges that difficulty, that suffering, that persecution. In chapter 4 and verse 12, just summing it up, he says, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you. He described it as a fiery ordeal. And then in verse 13, he says, to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. You do rejoice. Keep on rejoicing even as the difficulty escalates. That seems to be a fitting parallel to the culture in which we currently live. And it calls for an exuberant joy. In fact, the language is just as rich as it could possibly be. Again in verse 6, in this you greatly rejoice. This is a statement of fact about the believers who were under this duress. And then even more expansive in verse 8, you greatly rejoice, repeating what it said in verse 6, and adding with joy inexpressible and full of glory. I suppose the question to us is, is that a description of me? Is that me now as a believer, as one who belongs to Jesus Christ? Am I basically marked by great joy, joy that is inexpressible and full of glory? 
or joy unspeakable. The Greek word unspeakable is only used here. It's nowhere else in the entire New Testament. And it really means a joy that is beyond words. So joyful that you can't find words. It also implies that you can't find thoughts or you could put them to words. In other words, this is an unexpressible, unspeakable joy. It is a joy, he says, that's full of glory. In other words, it's related to heavenly things. It's related to divine realities. Does that mark you? Is that a description of you? Are you someone who greatly rejoices? You find your joy so overpowering that you can't even find thoughts or words to express your joy. That was true of these suffering believers in a situation perhaps far more challenging than ours. This is reminiscent of the words of Jesus in Luke 6.23 who said, Be glad and leap for joy. Why? For behold, your reward is great in heaven. So where does your joy come from? Your joy comes not from circumstances on earth, but the anticipation of reward in heaven. Now this is what Paul is talking about as well as Peter. When Paul says, set your affections on things above and not on things on the earth. In Luke 10, verse 20, our Lord said to His disciples, Rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. Rejoice that you're among the elect. Your names were written down before the foundation of the world. Rejoice, for your reward is great in heaven. A great reward calls for great rejoicing. And again, just to ask the question, does that describe you? Or do you find yourself falling into the milieu and the malaise of a very angry, unfulfilled, hostile, dissatisfied culture? You ought to be continually filled with the joy of heaven because of your salvation. It shouldn't be a command, but actually the New Testament is full of commands, and one of the commands is to rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice, for those times when you lose touch with reasons for joy. First Thessalonians 5.16 says, Rejoice always, always. Why? Because your joy is not connected to the ups and downs of your circumstances. It is connected to the fixed, immovable realities of heaven. This was the experience of Mary back in the first chapter of Luke when she heard from the angel that she was going to be the mother of the Messiah. And Mary said in Luke 1.46, My soul exalts the Lord and my spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. My spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. This is where your joy needs to be. That's joy full of glory. Joy that reflects heavenly realities. The person of God, Father, Son, 
and Holy Spirit the realities of our eternal reward. Be glad and leap for joy. When you can't find words, jump around. Do a little dance to express your joy. And all the blessings of salvation should produce that kind of joy. If you count your blessings and continually focus on all the heavenly promises that are yours, you will find that joy will dominate your heart. But of all the joys, all the heavenly joys, there is one joy that is the highest earthly joy. And it's the doorway to all other joys. I'll introduce it to you by introducing you to Thomas Brooks. Thomas Brooks was a Puritan who was born in 1608 and died in 1680. Among the many contributions he made to the kingdom and to the church, even of our day, is his great book called Heaven on Earth. If you haven't read it, I would highly recommend it. Thomas Brooks, Heaven on Earth. What is the subject of his book? What does he mean, Heaven on Earth? It's a book on this subject, the assurance of salvation. The assurance of salvation. And Thomas Brooks says, this is the Christian's highest joy. Assurance, he says, will yield two heavens. One to come and one in the present. Now let me tell you why he's saying that. If you're not sure you're saved, you can't enjoy any of the blessings of salvation. If you are sure you are saved, then you can enjoy all of the blessings of salvation. So the highest bliss this side of heaven is the ability to enjoy all the blessings of salvation which is only possible to people who believe they're saved. If you live with doubt and fear, you, you literally shut the door to the treasure house of blessing. And you find it very difficult to have an inexpressible joy that is full of heavenly glory. So Thomas Brooks writes things like this, The greatest thing we can desire is our own salvation. And the sweetest thing we can desire is the assurance of our salvation. You understand that? Without assurance, you'll still get to heaven, but you won't have heaven on earth. Brooks says, in this life, we cannot get higher than to be assured of the next life to be enjoyed. He says, all saints shall enjoy a heaven when they leave this earth. Some shall enjoy a heaven while they are here on earth. He says, being in a state of grace makes a man's condition happy, safe, and sure. But the knowing of himself to be in such a state is that which renders his life sweet and full of comfort. He also writes in his book, 
This assurance is the beauty and apex of a Christian's happiness in this life. It produces the strongest joy with the sweetest comforts and the greatest peace. And he says, it is a pearl that most want and a crown that few wear. I'm afraid so many Christians, real Christians, have so much doubt that they can't unlock the treasure house to joy because they can't even rejoice in the reality of their salvation. That's where all joy starts. That's what opens the door to your joy in response to all blessing. There's some history with this. As you know, the Puritans who were fighting apostate religion in England, there was the vestiges of Roman Catholicism. Basically, Roman Catholic theology to this very day hasn't changed. And Roman Catholic theology says you can never know you are saved. You can never be sure. First of all, you can never be secure because you can lose your salvation because it's a cooperative effort between you and God. God never misses on His part, but you might miss on your part. And so you can never be sure you're saved. And if you can't be sure that salvation is permanent, how can you possibly have the assurance that you possess it? This legacy of Catholicism has crushed the joy of generations of people. And it was an issue, a significant issue with the Reformers to help people understand that salvation was not a cooperative effort between men and God. It was a solo effort on God's part who saved the sinner by grace and God doesn't break His promise and it doesn't depend on your ability to stay connected to Him. So there was much sound theology in the Reformation to correct that distressing lie. And the Puritans who inherited the theology of the Reformers made much out of the issue of assurance. Some of them, however, seemed to set the bar very high. And there were some people under the influence of Puritan preaching who really were given such high demands that they felt they didn't meet, that they literally were driven to doubt their salvation. Certainly, we don't want someone who is saved to think that he is not. We don't want someone who is not saved to think that he is, which is common today. It's more likely today that people will think they're saved when they're not. In the Puritan era, it was more likely that they were saved and thought they weren't because the standards were raised so high. But if you are a true believer, all joy is tied to your eternal salvation. That's what I read in First Peter. But in order for you to embrace those joys, you have to believe your Christ's and you possess that salvation. And I want to make it as simple as I think Peter makes it. How do you know if you're a true Christian? There are two things. And they appear down in verse 8. In the middle of the verse, Peter says, Though you do not see Him now, 
but believe in Him. There's the first one. How do you know you're a Christian? By what you believe. And that you believe in Him that is the Lord Jesus Christ and everything about Him and the Gospel of grace that comes with Him. So, you believe in Him. Earlier in verse 8, though you have not seen Him, you love Him. There are basically the two tests as to whether or not you're a genuine believer. One is objective, you might say, and the other is subjective. The objective test is you believe. You believe what? You you believe the Gospel, which means you believe in the true God, the true Christ. Salvation by grace through faith alone. You believe the Gospel. If you believe the Gospel, if that is a conviction, then you're a true believer because that's exactly what probably the most repeated verse in the Bible says. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish but will have everlasting life believing in Him. You say, well, that seems like a pretty simple thing. In one sense, it is. In another sense, it's not. It's simple in the sense that it's true that believing the Gospel, believing the full truth of the Gospel, indicates that you are a Christian because non-believers don't believe the Gospel. It's that simple. The natural man understands not the things of God, they're foolishness to him. The preaching of the cross is foolishness to those who perish. So if you believe the Gospel, you believe in Him, there has been a divine miracle in your life. You have been regenerated. You have passed from darkness into light the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear Son. You have been delivered in the language of Romans 6 from the past form of teaching into a new form of teaching. So, the essence of your salvation is indicated by what you believe. By what you believe. And then by who you love. You believe in Him and you love Him. Now, we're not talking about some sentimental idea. There are a lot of people who have sentimental feelings about Jesus. But what we talk about here is this. The great commandment. What is the great commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Right? That means there's no love for any other God. There's no love for any other being at that level of submission and honor and respect and worship. That's what loving God means. With every faculty, you're devoted to Him and no other God. It's talking about the singular affection that you have toward the one true God, the one Savior, Jesus Christ. We're not talking about some kind of emotional attachment. Although certainly our emotions are captive to that love. But we're talking about the fact that there is no other Lord in our life. Love is Lordship. 
Belief is conviction about the truth, the written truth. So you could say, believe the truth written. Love the truth incarnate. You believe in Him and you love Him and Him alone. You are solely devoted to Him. So that, as Romans 10 says, you confess Jesus as Lord. If these things are true of you, if that is your conviction about the truth written and your affection about the truth incarnate, then the result is in verse 9. And verse 9 says, the outcome of that, the outcome of that faith and love is the salvation of your souls. The verb obtaining is a present middle tense. It means in the present, you can know for yourself that your faith has brought to reality the salvation of your soul. How do you know your soul is saved? How do you know your faith is real? Because of what you believe and whom you love. Obtaining, present, middle, komidzo. Presently receiving here and now for yourself the salvation of your souls. This is heaven on earth, folks. This is heaven on earth to know you are saved. If you don't know that, you can't find your way to enjoy the richness of salvation because... You can't get through the door of assurance to even know you're saved. If you know you're saved by what you believe and who you love, then your joy should be inexpressible. And it should be full of heavenly glory. Your life should be so filled with joy that you leap for joy. No matter what's going on in the world around you, the psalmist said that God had put gladness in his heart, Psalm 4. Isaiah said that the ransomed of the Lord will come with joyful shouting, with everlasting joy, Isaiah 35.10. Isaiah also said that the Christ was appointed to give the oil of gladness. Coming with salvation is gladness and joy. Isaiah 61.10 Isaiah writes, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord, for He has clothed me with the garments of salvation. If you're clothed with the garments of salvation and you know it, you need to rejoice greatly. When the angels announced the birth of Christ, they said they were bringing good news, the Gospel. And it was good news of great what? Great joy. Luke 2.10 The Apostle Paul wrote the Thessalonians and reminded them that they had received the Gospel with joy. John writes in his first epistle, These things I write unto you that your joy may be full. Joy is clearly the benchmark of a truly converted person. Why? Because your eternity is settled. 
You have nothing to fear in the life to come. Now, you can experience diminished joy. When sin comes into your life, your joy can fade away because assurance is a gift of the Holy Spirit to an obedient believer. You remember in Psalm 51, in David's great sin, he prayed to God and asked God to wash him, make him clean, and restore to him the joy of his salvation. But salvation in its essence has built-in joy. What do you care what happens in this life? You're only here for a moment, for a breath, compared to eternity. No matter how difficult life is, Jesus in Matthew 5, 11 and 12 says, Blessed are you when all men speak evil of you, when they persecute you. What do you care? For you have your Father in heaven who takes care of everything. No matter what the world brings, the believer should be marked by joy. So you get that joy when you know you're the real thing. And you know you're the real thing when the Lord has so changed your nature that you believe the Gospel and you love the Savior. So let's go back to our text and see something of the components of this believing and loving. There's a lot here, but go to verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice. In what? What is this? Well, what he's just said. The Gospel. Go back to verse 3. The mercy of God that caused you to be born again, regenerated to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. And this inheritance is protected by the power of God through faith, through the means of... You never let go of this hope. You never let go of this anticipation because the faith that God gave you never dies. So you are protected by the power of God through the permanent faith that He has given you for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So what, what is it that you believe? You believe in God the Father. You believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You believe in divine mercy. You believe in the new birth. You believe that being born again gives you a living hope. And that hope for life eternal is built on the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead who conquered death for all who follow Him. You believe there is an inheritance heaven, imperishable in heaven, imperishable, undefiled, unfading, reserved in heaven for you. Why are you, why are you living a Christian life? Why are you walking with Christ? Why are you a part of the church of Christ? Not because you expect something in this life. Far more important than that. You're headed to heaven and that's eternal. You have escaped everlasting hell, and punishment. You rejoice in the Gospel because you understand that it's divine mercy that gave you new life, a promised resurrection through the resurrection of Christ, a heavenly inheritance 
protected by God. And from your standpoint, your faith is so permanent, it never lets go of that confidence. You know, in Job's case, if you remember the book of Job, all of his, all of his children were killed. All of them, the whole family. All of his animals. Just a horrendous disaster in the beginning of the book of Job in chapter 1. And at the end of that chapter, he said, I never ever spoke a word against God. Really? And, and, and your entire family is wiped out? Why? Well, you know what the story was, right? Satan comes to God and says, the only reason Job serves you is because he's got everything. Take away what he's got and he'll deny you. And the Lord said, you don't understand saving faith. When I give saving faith, nothing can change it. And God allowed Satan to do what he did to Job. And Job said, Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. That's not normal. That's not human faith. That's the gift of faith from heaven. So, what is it that you believe? You believe in heaven. And you believe in Christ as the way to heaven. The one who died in your place for your sins. You believe in His resurrection. You confess Him as Lord and you believe that God raised Him from the dead, Romans 10, and you are saved. And no matter what happens in your life, that genuine faith will pass every test. You have a protected inheritance. Listen, why would God protect the inheritance if there was some chance you weren't going to show up? Why, why would it be an inheritance reserved in heaven for you if there was any question about you arriving? If there was any possibility of forfeiture? No. You are protected. You have a protected inheritance. And in this you greatly rejoice. This is where your joy comes from. Life offers you all kinds of circumstances that may be good or bad, happy or sad. But heaven never changes. And your eternal inheritance never changes. And it's reserved for you and there is no possibility that it would ever be given to anyone else. So you rejoice, as Paul says in Romans 5.2, in hope. And you go through life and you focus on that heavenly perspective. Set your affections on things above, not on things on the earth. Uh, one writer said it's, it's like riding on a train through the mountains. You're sitting on the train. You're on the train. You're headed to the destination. And on one side of the train, there's just a series of sheer cliffs. You're going along the tracks against the side of the mountain. And when you look out the window, you see nothing but dirt flying by. On the other side of the train are beautiful verdant valleys with streams and waterfalls. Look, you're on the train. You're going to the destination, but you could choose which side you want to look at. 
And as one who has awaiting in heaven an eternal inheritance, you, you ought to go to the side where you can enjoy the anticipation of your heavenly reward. Some Christians, it seems to me, have only enough Christianity to make them miserable. And you want to tell them, get on the other side of the train. Because all they do is become weighed down with burdens of guilt, unfulfilled aspirations, broken promises. And they get caught up in the disappointments of life. You're on the train to heaven if you believe the truth. And you might as well look out the window at all the beauties to come. There's a second thing here besides a protected inheritance that demonstrates the elements that you need to focus on for assurance. And this is in verse 6 at the end. You have been distressed by various trials. It's not to say that life's going to be easy. No, you've been distressed by various trials. They are for a little while. They are necessary. They are distressing. They are varieties of trials. Why? Why do we have these trials? Why, why do we have these trials? Why, why can't you just give us a life free from trials because, verse 7, so that the proof of your faith... Now, wait a minute. You need a proven faith, right? If your faith is not proven, then you're liable to, to live in doubt. So how do you prove your faith? And the answer comes immediately in verse 7. The proof of your faith through various trials is more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire. You know what proves your faith? Trials. Trials prove your faith. How does that work? Well, it's pretty simple, really. When you go through a deep trial, a distressing trial, does your faith survive? Are you like Job? Do you still praise the Lord? Do you still thank the Lord? Or does that trial crush your faith and make you turn away from God? You're not proving your faith to God. He knows your faith is real. But the way it's proven to you. God wants you to know you're saved so you can enjoy the believer's highest earthly joy and all other joys that come with it. And so He puts you through trials because trials test your faith. And when you come out the other side of the trial and your faith is still intact, you know you're the real thing. Look back in in my life when Patricia broke her neck and should have been killed in a car accident, I came out the other side of that not questioning God, but praising God and thanking God. 
I ran to God with all my might and all my power and all my concentration to hold her up in prayer. I turned to Him. Those intense times of prayer make you stronger than ever. It kind of works like this. When a heart is grieved and a heart is broken, a heart is suffering in its sorrow or its fears or its anxieties and the environment around is collapsing and it naturally leads the person to look for comfort and peace and an answer, where do you go? If you belong to God, you go directly to Him. It's the most immediate thing you do. The folly of the world is, well, where do you go when it goes bad? You go to the the bank and get more money. You go to the bar and get more booze. You go to the drug salesman or the medicine cabinet and get more drugs. You start swapping people in your life for sexual gratification. Maybe you lash out in vengeance. But the Christian, no. Like James, the Christian counts it all joy when he goes to various trials because those trials produce proven character. You know your faith is real by how it stands the test of trials. And Peter actually says that's the most precious thing there is. What is more precious than knowing your salvation is real? Knowing your faith is that faith which is a gift of God, not of yourselves. Ephesians 2. Apart from salvation, apart from the gift of salvation, is the knowledge that salvation is real. That is the most precious gift the Lord can give. And it comes through trials. comes through trials. Gold is referred to because it, it was the most precious thing about 385 times in the Bible. Far more precious than gold is the knowledge of your salvation. Because then you can say, you know, it really doesn't matter what happens to me here. I have... In heaven, a reward, because my name is written in heaven, because the Lord has laid up for me an imperishable treasure. And look, as Warren Wiersbe once wrote, when God permits His children to go through the furnace, He keeps an eye on the clock and a hand on the thermostat. And He doesn't let you go through more than you can handle. Coming out the other side is the best, the very best, because your faith is strong. So again, it's it's faith. It's the faith that's tested. You've gone through difficult times and you still believe the Gospel that tells you that this is a work of God who has planted that faith in you and given you the Spirit of God to confirm to your mind the truth of the written Gospel. But just quickly, the second one, don't have time to say much about it, is love, affection. Verse 8, you love Him. You love Him. And because you love Him, even though you don't see Him, 
you rejoice. And if you back into verse 7, because one day you will be found in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You love Christ because you believe that He has promised you heaven. That He has prepared a place for you. A room in the Father's house. And that one day you'll see Him, though you see Him not now. One day you will see Him And you will, along with Him, be found in praise and glory and honor when that day comes. If the written Gospel is what you believe, and the incarnate Christ is the one you confess as Lord, you're a Christian. And your faith may need some more testing. Welcome the trials to test your faith because that's how the Lord secures your assurance. When you think about loving Christ, you think about being in fellowship with Him in heaven, seeing Him in close, intimate communion, being like Him, loved and adored by Him, reigning with Him, serving alongside of Him and having Him serve you in heaven. So you know you're a Christian by what you believe and the one you love. You believe the written truth. You love the incarnate truth. And again, that love is not a sentiment. It is lordship. And that love will find its fulfillment as I showed you when you see Him face to face and with Him are in praise and glory and honor. So Peter is exalting faith and love. Faith and love. And those are things that God gives us. He grants us the faith to believe the truth when it's not natural to do that. And we love Him because He first what? Loved us. And if you know you're saved... And every believer should by those two tests. Then you have enjoyed the believer's highest earthly joy. Because in being confident of your salvation, you can then be confident in every blessing that comes with it. Our Father, we thank You for Your Word Thank You for the promises You've given us. And we know You are a God who is faithful, loyal, loving, fulfills all promises. Lord, it is a corrupt world in which we live, but we don't want that world to steal our joy. Our citizenship is in heaven. We are strangers and aliens in this world. We can't get caught up in what's wrong with this world because nothing is going to fix that until You come back and we will come with You in glory. Help us to have no expectations for what the world might be. Help us to turn away from trying to find our joy in the world 
and find our joy in heaven, in your promises, and all that we anticipate with the living hope that is continually kept alive and stoked like a fire by the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit who witnesses to us that we belong to You. Fill us with joy inexpressible and full of glory, we pray. Amen. You've been listening to John MacArthur, Bible Teacher with Grace to You. For free access to all of John's lessons and a listing of study Bibles and books available for sale, visit Grace to You's website at gty.org. John MacArthur and Grace to You reserve all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available at gty.org, and it includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating this digital file.
got mad, struck the rock with a stab. David sinned greatly, even lost his baby. And Jacob, he was just all around shady. The point is not to make light of our flaws, but to show that every one of us needs the cross. So as we read the Bible, it's important that we see this. There's only one hero, and his name is Jesus. truthbetoldradio.com that is t-r-u-t-h-b-e-t-o-l-d r-a-d-i-o dot c-o-m truthbetoldradio.com do you have any questions suggestions comments or want to tell us anything send those emails to truthbetoldradioshow at gmail.com remember by sending us your email you give us permission to read it on the air so write us at truthbetoldradioshow at gmail.com. If you like to read blogs, we've got you covered. Check out ours at truthbetoldradio.blogspot.com. That's truthbetoldradio.blogspot.com. Also, follow us on Twitter as truth, the letter B, then told radio. That is T-R-U-T-H-B-T-O-L-D-R-A-D-I-O. Once again, that is truth. The letter B only, not B-E, told radio. This is due to the restraints for Twitter's username link. Finally, to learn the testimony of Melissa Canchoa, the hostess of Truth Be Told Radio, see smilesandstuff.com. That's S-M-I-L-E-S-A-N-D-S-T-U-F-F dot C-O-M. Smilesandstuff.com. So stay social with us, and thanks for listening to Truth Be Told Radio. The Earth is Round. This is Ken Ham, and we've produced the family-friendly Answers Bible Curriculum. Who discovered that the Earth is round? Well, most textbooks credit a man named Pythagoras about 500 years before Christ. But consider this verse from the book of Isaiah, He who sits above the circle of the earth. 200 years before Pythagoras, the prophet Isaiah implied that the earth was round. The Bible got it right before secular astronomers figured it out. In our day, many people say the Bible is wrong about science and history. But those before Pythagoras might have thought that the Bible was wrong about the shape of the earth too. And yet, the Bible was right. And the so-called wisdom of men, well, that was wrong. There's so much more to discover about the truth of God's Word and the Gospel when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com. Get answers to defend God's Word at AnswersRadio.com. Yeah. He made us all, yo. Yeah. God made us all, yo. God made me and you. Sing, children. So we all have God made me and you. Me and you, y'all. God made me and you. 
he did it to show off his glory and worth. In Genesis 1, what we see in each verse is God made a world that is truly diverse. From icebergs to insects, tornadoes to trees, from lions to lizards, flamingos to fleas. Each in their own way, they God they are praising. Their differences cry out, God is amazing. But the crown jewel of the work of his hands are made in his image, both woman and man. We're not accidents, we are part of his plan. Yup, God made me and you. Let's go. never the same. Each person is different, unique in their frame. God made them all, each kind and each sport. He made some people tall and some people short. Dark skin, light skin, and all in between. In each color and shade, his beauty is seen. The Lord knows the number of hairs on your head. Whether brown or black, whether blonde, gray or red. What some call ethnicity and others call race. We should celebrate as the gift of God's grace. You're wonderfully made from your feet to your face. Yup, God made me and you. Let's go. Trust in the Lord will be saved in the book of Revelation, chapter number 7. The church from all times is gathered in heaven. Each tribe and people, language and nation, all thanking God for the gift of salvation. Together, forever, with saints of all kinds, through each the glory of the Lord's going to shine. This is exactly what God has designed when God made me and you. Let's go. for sharing God's Word and its truths with the world. Pictures of Earth from space show a blue, green and white ball suspended from nothing in the inky blackness of space. Now, the idea of something hanging from nothing seems silly without an understanding of the natural laws God created to govern the universe. That's why many people in the past believed the Earth must sit on something. And yet consider this verse from the Old Testament book of Job, that God hangs the Earth on nothing. This verse expresses, through poetry, that God created earth unsupported by any physical object. People in Job's time might have thought that was a ridiculous idea, but we know it's true. 
Science confirms the Bible. Get answers to your questions about science, the Bible, creation, evolution, and more at AnswersRadio.com. And listen to this program again when you visit AnswersRadio.com.
The universe, is it expanding? This is Ken Ham, head of the ministry that built a full-size Noah's Ark south of Cincinnati. Secular scientists once believed that the universe was eternal and unchanging, but observational science challenged this idea and eventually they were forced to accept that the universe is expanding. That implies it had a beginning and has changed since then. But if they'd looked to God's word, they would have known that the universe had a beginning when God created it just a few thousand years ago. And they'd also have known it's not unchanged. The Bible mentions several times that the universe has been stretched out by God. This expansion has now been confirmed by science. God's word, not man's word, is true, eternal, and it's unchanging. Plan to visit our full-size Noah's Ark by going to our website at AnswersRadio.com. Children 10 and under enjoy free admission this year, so bring the whole family. Go to AnswersRadio.com. Writing this to you, I really hope you hear my heart When thinking about describing you, I really don't know where to start Can't start at the beginning, cause you are before the beginning Way before the beginning, and this fallen world's distorted opinions It was just the holy trinity, ruling from infinity Glory blazed tremendously, loving one another endlessly Billions and billions of years ago, outside of what we know as time Nobody else was there to know, but Lord, here's the thing that blows my mind As long ago as that was Long ago as that was, you have not changed, Lord. Oh Lord, Lord, Lord. As long ago, as long ago, as long ago as that was, you're still the same. You have not changed. What can that mean? But my God is immutable. Immutable, you are beautiful. You never change. You remain the Immutable, beautiful You never change, never change Forever you reign, you remain the same You will never change, you will never change Immutable, beautiful You never change, never Just the other day, how you reign supreme by far Not just because of what you do, but simply because of who you are There's none like you in existence, you are God and you need no assistance Even though we show you resistance, you sent Jesus to close the distance That existed between God and man, according to your sovereign plan We changed many times in one lifespan, I've changed even since this song began Lord, I'm so glad that you're not like us, all that you do will certainly last You are the rock that we can trust, shows us back in eternity past As long ago as that was as long ago as that was, you have not changed, Lord. Oh, Lord, Lord, Lord. As long ago, as long ago, as long ago as that was, you're still the same. You have not changed. What can that mean? But my God is immutable. Immutable, you are beautiful. You never change, you remain the same. Immutable, beautiful, you never change, never change. Forever you reign, you remain the same. You will never change, you will never change. Immutable, beautiful, you never change, never change. 
about my ups and downs, all of my inconsistencies, all of my idiosyncrasies. Still you pursue relentlessly. At times I wonder how this can be. Surely it's because of the cross. Would Jesus paid the full penalty and bore the burden of this great cost. I'm saved by grace and faith in God. I look to Christ and I trust he died. But even though I'm being sanctified, I can't be any more justified. His work is finished that cannot change. And with this knowledge I am free. Forever this grace it will remain because of what happened on Calvary. As long ago as that was, as long ago as that was, you have not changed, Lord, oh Lord, 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 as long ago, as long ago, as long ago as that was, you're still the same, you have not changed, what can that mean, but my God is immutable, immutable, you are beautiful, Never change, you remain the same. Immutable, beautiful. You never change, never change. Forever you reign, you remain the same. You will never change, you will never change. Immutable, beautiful. You never change, never Can we trust the Bible? This is Ken Ham, author of the eye-opening book, Six Days and Church Compromise. The truth and reliability of the Bible are under attack in our culture. Secularists claim the Bible can't be trusted. And sadly, many Christians say the Bible's wrong about science and history. They claim we have to reinterpret much of the Bible's so-called problematic doctrine especially regarding sexuality and gender. But as we've seen this week, when the Bible touches on science, such as astronomy, it's always right, even hundreds of years ahead of its time. Instead of joining with the world in distrusting the Bible and reinterpreting the parts that don't fit with the secular story, we should trust God's Word, knowing that science will always confirm the Bible. Find resources to equip you to stand for biblical truth at AnswersRadio.com and subscribe to receive free daily email insights from Ken Ham when you go to AnswersRadio.com.
and for the glory of God as well as the glory of Mary and other saints. When you look at the Roman Catholic plan of salvation, it is a salvation of works and sacraments. In the Roman Catholic plan of salvation, baptism cleanses an infant from original sin. And that is the sacrament of regeneration as well as justification. That it starts them off on this plan, on this track. Along the way, however, they can commit these small sins, venial sins, which plunges them back down. And heaven forbid they commit a mortal sin, which knocks them completely off the plan of salvation. And he must now receive sacraments. He must confess his sins to a priest, which is the sacrament of penance. And then he must be re-justified by doing good works, by doing penance. And once he is re-justified, then he must maintain his salvation through sacraments. And if, in the end, if they have enough people praying for them, and if they do enough time in purgatory, they might possibly get to heaven. How they get to heaven is based on what they do rather than what Christ has done. But the Bible teaches there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, the work has been done. He saves you totally, completely, perfectly. And even though, yes, we sin and can repent, the sacrifice of Christ has paid for those sins. And so there is assurance that he has saved you, he has plucked you out of the world, you're in the palm of his hand, and nobody can pluck you out of his hand. And so that's why the Reformers cried the five souls, that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to Scripture alone, all for the glory of God alone. My name is Dylan Mulvaney. I am a trans woman, and I am documenting my transition publicly on TikTok for the world to see. Mr. President, this is my 221st day of publicly transitioning. God love it. This is Dylan Mulvaney, a trans TikToker, and this is Joe Biden, the President of the United States, the most powerful man in the world. And before we talk more about what in the world is happening, Let's look a little more at what Dylan and President Biden talked about. I am extremely privileged to live in a state that allows me access to the resources I need, and that decision is just between me and my doctors. But many states have lawmakers that feel like they can involve themselves in this very personal process. Do you think states should have a right to ban gender-affirming health care? I don't think any state or anybody should have the right to do that. As a moral question and as a legal question, I just think it's wrong. I mean, uh, you know, no, no state should be able to do that, in my view. So I feel very, very strongly that, uh, that you should have every single solitary right, including, including use of your gender identity bathrooms in public. Thank you. Thank you. Notice that President Biden is 100% on board with and supportive of every single issue that Dylan brings up. Biden is putting himself squarely on the side of gender-affirming health care, which could, arguably, more accurately be called child mutilation. Whatever the trans rights activists want, Biden wants to give it to them. Let's keep watching. And it it feels like Republicans have turned trans and non-binary people into this thing to blame society's downfall on in some ways. And this narrative is not only dangerous to our mental health, but also our physical safety. 
and particularly trans women of color, are being murdered at an alarming rate. More than any other group of people. Thank you. And here, Dylan and Biden join together in attacking Republicans for simply wanting to defend the definitions of male, female, and marriage, and wanting to protect underage children from life-altering surgery. And they both cite a particular statistic that is extremely dishonest. The stuff about the trans murder rate, how trans people are murdered more than anyone else, an alarming rate, there's an epidemic of anti-trans murders, all of that, is, is, it's a flat-out lie. They're, they're making it up. Um, all they do is make stuff up. And what they do is they report the total number of trans people who are supposedly murdered, the, the total number, all of them, every single murder, and they insinuate or outright claim that they were all killed, every single one of them, in anti-trans hate crimes. And, uh, and I think that uh, it's really important that we continue to speak out about the basic fundamental rights of all human beings. And the idea, the idea that what's going on, you know, in some states, I won't get into the politics of it, but in some states, it's just, it's outrageous. And I think it's immoral. The trans part's not immoral. What they're trying to do to trans persons is immoral. Again, notice that President Biden is 100% on the same page as Dylan, and that there is absolutely nothing being proposed by the most radical transgender activist that Biden ever disagrees with or pushes back against. So things are changing. Things are changing, but it's a matter of us acknowledging that there's nothing to be, just because it's different, there's nothing to be fearful about. And there we have it. These are the kind of interviews President Biden chooses to do, and this is the kind of person President Biden chooses to be interviewed by. Now, who exactly is this Dylan Mulvaney? What makes him so significant that he was given the opportunity to interview the President of the United States? Well, Dylan was recently featured on an Alta Beauty podcast to discuss femininity. Now I know I can find love. I know I can still be a performer. I know that I can have a family. I want to be a mom one day, and I absolutely can and that's why the narrative still has a long way to go, because when I was grieving Boy Dylan, I didn't know those things were even accessible to me. Remember, Dylan is a biological man who identifies as a woman, and Dylan created a TikTok series called Days of Girlhood. Day one of being a girl, and I have already cried three times. I wrote a scathing email that I did not send. I ordered dresses online that I couldn't afford. And then uh, when someone asked me how I was, I said, I'm fine, when I wasn't fine. Um, so Dylan identifies not even as a woman, but as a girl. And he's not even really identifying as a girl, but rather as a cartoonish, insulting caricature of a girl. Day 66, being a girl, and today I'm in nature. Trees, I love them. Water, lake, I love them. Heels, they're my hiking heels. I love them. <laughs> Here's why I threw away all my blood pressure meds. Drinking this before bed can lower blood pressure by 26 points. If you're over 50 and struggling with high blood pressure, then you need to hear this. People are getting their blood pressure under control by adding just one ingredient to a glass of water before bed. Scientists from the University of North Carolina have confirmed for the first time that high blood pressure has nothing to do with your diet, age, or genetics, but with a simple, crucial molecule found in our bodies. They found that this molecule has a key role in controlling whether your blood pressure is normal or elevated. And now, scientists from Mayo Clinic discovered that when a strange ingredient is paired with a glass...
Bridges, love them. Coconut water, love it. Not mad, just love it. Wind turbine, love it. <laughs> Meadows, love them. <laughs> I'm scared of getting Lyme disease. Is there anything more ridiculous than Dylan's conception of a girl here? Well, a strong contender would be the President of the United States watching and being a fan of Dylan's Days of Girlhood series. Leaving on cloud nine. The President of the United States gave me a cookie. He gave me a cookie in the Oval Office. Now here's the question. Do I eat it or do I save it? It has a seal. I, please, honestly, tell me. Tell me what? I make it back to dog. I got a pet his dog. I'm still in shock, and don't be mad, but I don't get to post any of the footage until after the interview airs on Sunday night, but it's going to be worth it because I can't wait for you to hear everything that we talked about. I left with a lot of hope and optimism, not only for just trans people, but many different topics, and the fact that our president has watched Days of Girlhood is kind of epic. Now, this would all be pretty humorous if it wasn't so frightening. Here we have the president of the United States, the most powerful man in the world, bowing down to the most radical wing of the LGBTQ movement and vowing to fight to give the most extreme transgender activists every single thing they want politically. What's frightening is just how quickly a fringe minority has essentially taken over the White House and the most powerful politicians in the United States. And there was a time when... We didn't have the idea crammed down our throat that we don't know what a woman is or what a man is, or that it's somehow wrong and offensive to have, you know, a gender reveal for a baby. Why is it wrong or offensive? Because if you are revealing that your baby in the womb is a boy or a girl, you're robbing them of their right and opportunity to tell you, I would say 15 years from now, but now it's like not even six or seven years from now, what they actually are. That's the world that we're living in, and it has tremendous consequences. This is the world we now live in, where someone as ridiculous as Dylan Mulvaney can completely control the policy decisions of the President of the United States. Thank you so much for watching until the end. If you'd like this video, hitting the subscribe button helps this channel reach more people with the truth. Thank you so much for your support and encouragement.
need to conform us into the image of his beloved Son. And suffering is one of God's most helpful tools in our sanctification process. But you're thinking, hey, Pally, 1 Corinthians 10.13 says God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. Of course, the verse is true, but notice the limitations. God will always provide us a way out of Haitian, but that doesn't preclude his giving us difficulties in life that push us toward reliance on him. Number nine. When you die, heaven gains another angel. There are two people would give a thumbs up to that cliche. Number one. Roma Downey, (laughs) who wants to get their theology from her. Number two, Jimmy Stewart. You believe that Clarence is an angel that used to live as a human on earth. Human beings do not become spiritual beings when we die. We don't become an angel. We don't become a demon upon death. We stay human and one day at that great big final resurrection, those who are raised with Christ to eternal life, you're going to get yourself a heavenly, glorified human body. Number eight, God helps those who help themselves. Maybe, just maybe this does make sense if you're in a work-righteous system like Catholicism or Mormonism. <laughs> but ultimately, that statement is antithetical to Christ's gospel. God didn't help us because we first helped ourselves. He saved us while we were yet sinning. Number seven, why do bad things happen to good people? And that is 100% certifiably, absolutely, positively wrong, 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 wrong. There are no good. The only way a human can become a good person is through the redemptive work and perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ imputed to you. Number six, God hmm, just wants me to be happy. That tends to come from somebody who's running off into a swamp of sin. Two problems with that cliche. One, God wants you to be holy, not just happy. Second, God gives us something more transcendent and lasting than happiness, which tends to be derived from external circumstances. God wants you to have joy, 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 joy. No! That was terrible, Todd. Sorry. Down in your heart. Number five, we're all God's children. Now, to be fair, all human beings are created by God, and every single one of us is made in his image, but we are all a from the Father by sin, and only those who are hidden in Christ are adopted into God's family and are his children who receive special blessings. Number four, judge the sin, not the sinner. Doesn't anybody watch Judge Judy? I don't want to look at you anymore. Go. Ow! Do we not know how the criminal justice system works? Crimes don't get sent to prison. Criminals do. And when God judges the unrighteous, he doesn't send their sin to hell. He sends the sinner. Number three, when God closes a door, you can be certain. 
you, but sometimes God actually slams the door and locks the windows because he has a greater <laughs> purpose in mind than we have for ourselves. Number two, and this one's a tad tricky because the statement itself is true, but typically this truism is being used for nefarious purposes. Here it is. God is love. Yeah, of course he is. The Bible says so, and Jesus proved it. But too often this cliche is wielded to paint God as only loving, approving, never judging, certainly not upset, never angry or wrath-filled. God is love, but he's also holy, just, righteous, and angry at sin every day. And finally, our number one Christian flitch. Yep, I'm sticking with it. This bad boy has to go. It is so low, so trivial, so trite, and so downright blasphemous. Without any further ado, the number one Christian glitch, Jesus, my homeboy. <laughs> we all know Jesus is a friend of mine. Jesus is a friend of mine. He's my friend. Jesus is a friend, but he's more than imminent, near, close. He's transcendent, high, holy, and exalted. This is a homeboy. This is not. Hey, want to move from being a cliched Christian to being a robust theologian? Encourage you to get drive-by theology with Dr. Steve Lawson. We tackle theological categories that keep us from becoming a victim of Christian glitches. Yes, yes, I did. Yeah, I mean, cliches. <laughs> you were saying it wrong. Um, that was from Wretched. You can find out more about them at wretched.org, W-R-E-T-C-H-E dot O-R-G. And that was also on YouTube where I got that. Here's another one. Some of the Flintstones were not only entertaining, but scientifically accurate. There is life on other planets. Now, if only they could figure out a better braking system. Have you noticed, NASA? They seem bent on finding life on from Joe Rogan to the History Channel to our own government, it seems everyone is intrigued by the idea there could be some form of life out there in the cosmos. It's become a downright cultural obsession. Perhaps what drives this obsession is the desperate attempt to prove evolution. If only we could find primitive life somewhere, anywhere, anything! That will be the scientific proof we need to disprove the existence and necessity of God. And speaking of which, there is no small amount of irony in the secularist mad dash attempts to find Martians. Their chief argument is that the universe is so big, statistically, there just has to be something out there with no proof. They cling to the belief there's other life out there somewhere. But if you ever suggest God might be the life force that is out there. Oh, no, that's impossible. There's no proof for God. That's the smell 
of irony. So how do we know if there is life out there? We've got to look in here. That's right. A book that was written millennia ago gives us direction to answer the question, is there life on other planets? Number one, God is the creator of everything. So let's just say, for the sake of argument, there were other physical beings out there somewhere. They do not exist outside of God's creative decree. In other words, if, and I don't think they will, but if they do find life out there, it is not going to substantiate evolution. Number two, the Bible mums the word on the positive proposition that there is life out there. The focus of the Bible, especially in Genesis, but all throughout, it's God's unique creative work and his redemptive work on earth and nowhere else. Is that an argument from silence? Yeah, but still an argument. Number three, what the Bible clearly does say is that God came to earth as a human in the person of Jesus to save humans on earth. It would be a bit inconsistent to think that other human or human-like creatures exist in his creation outside his redemptive intentions for earth. Number four, the Bible actually does mention other beings that are spiritual. Angels demons, not humanoids from other planets. Do you smell the irony again? Secularists cry, there are no such thing as angels and demons, but there's definitely life out there that we haven't seen. Mm, it's pungent. But perhaps you're wondering, what about UFOs? We've got oodles o sightings of unidentified flying objects, and the solution to those mysterious sightings is baked right into the name. They are unidentified flying objects. We don't know what they are, but simply seeing an abnormality or inexplicable sight in the air does not warrant the conclusion that Kazoo is coming back. It is absolutely worth noting that many unidentified flying objects have indeed been identified as either Misunderstood natural phenomenon, shooting stars, refractions, solar flares. Oftentimes we discover a UFO is actually misinterpreted man-made objects like air balloons, drones, military jets. UFOs, they are just that, unidentified flying objects. And it is only the wild imagination of NASA on the Twilight Zone that concludes, aha, that's a Martian spaceship, might I humbly suggest. Don't drive yourself bonkers trying to solve these ideas that have no scientific basis in reality. We have better things to do, and whatever you do, don't let it cause you to doubt God's very clear plan for this planet. And here it is, someday, hopefully soon, an unidentified flying object is going to appear in the sky. That object is the person of the God-man, Jesus Christ, and he's going to burn up this place to cleanse it from corruption, create a new heaven and a new earth right here. Put your hope in that. Focus on that. There is far more reason to believe in Jesus than there is to believe in E.T. But where are the feminists when you need them in the name of inclusion? And a sexual revolution, too much harm 
has been done to our women, and there is hardly anything worse for women than polygamy. Rarely do you see polyandry, one wife, lots of husbands. We usually see polygamy, one husband, and oodles, oh, wives. Can you think of anything more degrading for women than to be ranked in order of importance by one man? So where are the feminists protesting that a female New York City judge ruled that non-monogamous unions have the same right to be recognized as marriages that are monogamous unions. In other words, she just gave a big thumbs up to polygamy. What's wrong with you people? And just as an aside, take heart, you kooky conservative who predicted that legalizing same-sex marriage would be a slippery slope that would lead to polygamy. Keep looking in your mailbox. An apology from the White House will be coming soon. Now, I know what you non-Christians are thinking right about now. Doesn't the Bible actually ordain and support polygamous unions? After all, look at Solomon and Jacob and Warren Jeffs, for starters, Warren Jeffs isn't actually in the Bible. Second, there are three reasons that the behavior of a few men in the Bible does not mean that the Bible actually endorses polygamy. Number one, just because something occurs in Scripture, something is described in Scripture, that doesn't make it normative or endorsed by God. Yeah, Abraham, Jacob, David. Solomon, they all had more than one wife. That was a cultural norm at the time the Old Testament stories were written, but that doesn't mean it is something that should be repeated in our day, in our culture. Description is not the same as prescription. You simply won't find a Bible verse that endorses polygamy. Number two, check out them consequences of polygamy. Plural union, Abraham, Sarah, the handmaiden, Hagar, heartbreak, hotel, for all of them. Solomon was led away from God by his hundreds of wives who worshipped foreign gods. If the Bible says anything about polygamy, it gives it a big thumbs down. But number three, it goes against the clear consistent teaching of the entire Bible from Genesis 2 to Matthew 19. Marriage is a union created and intended by God for one man and one woman. Polygamy is outside of that narrow description. This world, seriously, it's like an Olympic gold medalist bobsled team just flying down a slippery slope of perversion with no end in sight. Christians must be clear, firm, loving, and emphatic. Polygamy is a big no-no. I just wonder when we can expect to hear as much from Gloria Steinem and Hillary Clinton. When was the last time you saw someone smile while dealing with medical expenses. Permit me to introduce you to MediShare, affordable biblical health sharing with telehealth services, 
a customer satisfaction rate that is double traditional health insurance, and the average family saves $500 per month in two minutes. You can know what your family will be saving at 844-34-BIBLE. one God, and he is the maker of heaven and earth, and he made us in his image and likeness, male and female, with dignity, value, worth, and purpose. He made us to worship, 
and we chose to sin against him, to rebel against him, to disobey him. As a result, we are separated from God, and we live under the foolish myth that to some degree we are each our own God, declaring right and wrong and living our own life by our own standards. And that God lovingly came into human history as the man Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man that he was born of a virgin, and he lived a life without sin, though he was tempted in every way as we are. And he went to the cross, and there he substituted himself. Our first parents in the garden substituted themselves for God, and at the cross, Jesus reversed that substitution and substituted himself for sinners. And when Jesus went to the cross, he took willingly upon him the sin of those who would come to trust in him. That means me, as a sinner, Jesus went to the cross and took upon himself all my sin, past, present, and future. And Jesus Christ, God, who was a man, died in my place for my sins, paying my debt to God and purchasing my salvation. Jesus' dead body was then laid in the tomb, and for three days he was buried. On the third day, a Sunday, which is why we worship on that day, Jesus rose in victory over Satan, sin, death, demons and hell and he commissioned us with the holy spirit to be missionaries telling this amazingly good news that there's a god who passionately lovingly continually relentlessly pursues us and he ascended into heaven and today jesus is alive and well and he's seated on a throne and he is ruling and reigning over all nations and all cultures and all philosophies and all races and all periods he is King of kings, and he is Lord of lords, and he is ruling and reigning over all people, commanding everyone everywhere to repent of everything. And he is coming again to judge the living and the dead, and those who trust in him will enjoy eternity in his kingdom of heaven forever, and those who do not will suffer apart from him in the conscious eternal torment of hell. That is what we believe. We believe in Jesus. gospel in three minutes and now we're gonna end the show with Yancy and friends and the via via and bye for now the beat.